and welcome to the CBGS podcast. Mm. I'm here with Mr. Paul Waite, and we've been away for about three weeks. Yes. We've had emails We're saying, where are you? today, <laughs> Where are you guys? What have you been up to? I wonder where I am. Yeah, so did I, but we're here now. We've just magically appeared. <laughs> yes. <laughs> up in the studio, and um, we're going we're gonna to talk today um, about a subject that Paul's very passionate about, um, which is um, market disruption. Market, sorry, innovative disruption, really. Innovative disruption. Or innovative disruption, yeah. Mm, yes, and, and I believe that's, um, that's the subject of your next keynote speech that you're going to give a, a, Reading, an expo yes. at Reading, British mm. Expos. So yeah, it'd be very interesting to talk about that. I just kick the mic. Oh, oh dear! Edit that, what was that? Out. Yeah. You might hear a bit of a bang there. <laughs> and um, but before we go into that, um, I know I know Paul, you're you're um, passionate about politics as well, and you've got a little thing that you want to um, discuss <laughs> before we go into the into the depth of disruption. Depth. Yes, I think um, one of the things that Drew and I have um, realised since we started doing our podcast is that uh, effectively. You know, people just like listening to um, interesting things that are said. It doesn't really matter what you talk about. So, what we try to do is 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 to bring things to um, uh, to you all that are are interesting and and also relevant. I think, and I think sometimes one thing that frustrates me as uh, uh, as, as someone who's very interested, um, I'm not sure if politics is. I am interested in politics, but it's more. Um, the fact that I can't abide uh, hypocrisy and uh, people saying things which are untrue when they know they are, for instance. And um, I think in previous podcasts, I've talked about the fact that, you know, the current time we had the worst parliament uh, probably since 1640 or something with Charles I. And, um, and of Why course, was it so bad then? Well, he ended up losing his head, didn't he? Oh. Yes, yeah, really. But if only that could happen now. The Rump Parliament. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, read wow. about the Rump Parliament. That's it. 1641, I think, might be. Anyway, um, so we have a situation at the moment where, frankly, we have uh, you know, 300 and something MPs who, uh, frankly, don't know how to behave or what their role is. And it's a, a complete shambles. Uh, culminating this week, of course, in 21 Tories, including. Uh, some extremely prominent people, I think, including at least four ex-cabinet ministers um, and a very respected one in Ken Clark, whose love for Europe finally um, became greater than his ability to see what was right or to do the right thing by his party, um, which I find very interesting when you consider, in my opinion, the single biggest threat to the free market in this country has to be Jeremy Corbyn and his Marxist policies, um, which would be truly terrifying. So um, I go so far as to say that um, I would rather stay in Europe. <laughs> if someone said to me, you could be assured that he would never be the Prime Minister, <laughs> uh, reluctantly, that's what I would do. So I can't see why people can't see that. But anyway, I just want to talk about um, uh, what's going on at the moment. And if any of you have got the time, uh, please do go and look on YouTube at... Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's defence of Parliament or what Parliament should be um, yesterday uh, in, a, in a very long speech where he was interrupted about 20 times uh, by uh, other MPs who wanted to have their two pennies worth which is a, a practice I find rather ridiculous to be frank in the, in the House of Commons because 
Um, surely it would be much better if he just got up and spoke and then people said afterwards mm. what they thought about mm. it rather than continually interrupting him. That disrupts your flow as well, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you, uh, well, yeah. well, you'd think it would. I mean, one of the things that impresses me so much about that man is he he is, in my opinion, the greatest orator and has the greatest use of the English language of anyone in my oh, lifetime. Okay. Oh, wow. Yes. He doesn't conflate the argument to mm. use a word, a sort of a, a, a sort of word that Jacob would use. Conflate. Conflate, for instance. Oh, that's a good one. I yeah. don't know what that means. No, we can guess what it might mean. <laughs> um, so he uses, you know, he uses the English language beautifully, and he talks, um, obviously, you know, um, to some extent, I guess, because he talks so beautifully, it could be argued that he... His message is, disgu- is disguised a bit mm. um, by his eloquence, if you like. But nonetheless, um, now effectively, what he was saying is, and this is the central debate to me: uh, what, what we what we now have for the first time for hundreds of years, I think, is in effect. Uh, this is my opinion, and obviously, a lot of people wouldn't agree with me. Uh, we actually have a standoff in effect between the people and Parliament, right? Probably, probably more accurate to say uh, a standoff between between forty and sixty percent of the people uh, and Parliament, because clearly, for instance, everyone that votes Liberal Democrat uh, or SNP uh, would agree with everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and to be fair to the Liberal Democrats, they don't have they they basically are proud to be anti-democratic. That's not how they say it. They, 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 they passionately believe we should be in the EU, and they will do anything in their power to to, to do that, regardless of what the people want. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether to admire that or to hate it. Really, it's uh, it's it, it, I'm torn. You know, I, I, I at least I appreciate the honesty, mm-hmm. whereas Labour's position is 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 obviously extremely vacuous and convenient. Uh, and difficult to support on on, on any grounds, but it just seems to me. I just I just wanted to comment on something on because um, what happens is, is is people say things on the telly, uh, and the BBC in particular just let things go. So mm-hmm. Owen Jones probably would be the most annoying oik currently uh, representing the voice of Remain uh, on on television, and um, no, he he will he will say things. Uh, and the BBC interviewer never corrects him or, or tries to create a balance, you know. And, and to me, that that can't be right. So I think at the moment, it's a it's a, the central debate is effectively how the public, how the people view uh, the role of the MPs, Parliament. So, to my mind, seventeen point four million people were asked to vote, and and one of the points I thought Jacob made very eloquently was. No one said, uh, by the way, you can vote on this referendum, but it doesn't matter how many people want to leave or stay. We, as the MPs, reserve the right to override you, Mm. right? And uh, frankly, I think if someone stood up in public and said that, they would be... What's the point in even having... (laughs) They would be derided Mm. and Mm. worse, you know. Mm. But that's effectively what's happening. So, you know, it seems to me... um, so what you've got at the moment is you've got the word democracy being bandied around by people on both sides of the argument. So mm-hmm. from naught to 100 are both saying what they're doing is democratic. So Jacob Rees-Mogg is saying what he's doing is democratic because the people asked us to leave, therefore the government is simply enforcing the will of the people. Yeah. And then um, Joe Swinson, for instance, is basically saying, uh, but... Uh, 
you know, clearly uh, a no deal Brexit, for instance, is is a bad thing, right? So clearly it is, even though no one no one can prove it is, but it is it is it is a, it's beyond all doubt a bad thing, and therefore uh, we have to stop it, and and that what the Tories are doing is is undemocratic because they're trying to uh, enforce what I would consider to be the democratic decision mm-hmm. in a manner which is. Uh, not acceptable to them. Let's, mm. let's let's put it that. Now, of course, the whole legal argument is that the Tories would say that what they are doing is con- constitutionally and legally valid. And in fact, Jacob's point, which I thought he made very well, although it fell on stony ground because obviously they lost, mm. um, was in fact that um, uh, Parliament didn't have the right to effectively um, step in and become the judge. You know, it, it, its role was simply. To um, you know, he was giving various other examples of of. So what he's basically saying is, you know, the government is is empowered to make policy. Mm-hmm. If the house doesn't like that, then they they should do something about it, which would traditionally be a vote of no confidence, which would then ultimately trigger in a general election. And of course, what we've had now is actually Boris Johnson has said, okay, let's have a general election, and the others have all said no. You know, and, and, and I, I, no I couldn't make believe, their mind up. <laughs> I couldn't believe. Well, I don't think that's the point. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I couldn't believe uh, something I read on BBC News this morning. Nicola Sturgeon apparently said that um, Boris Johnson wanted to call a general election because um, he he wanted to um, to get through a No Deal Brexit. Well, that see that that just sums up the the whole thing to me. So if you think about what, what the implications of what she just said. So in order for that to be true, therefore Boris Johnson would have had to have won the general election, wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. So that means the people have actually said, yes, go on and do that. Mm. So if the mm-hmm. people said, go on and do that, therefore doing that would be what the people wanted. Yeah. Do you see my point? And, and, this is, and to me, it's, it's quite simple. Mm. You know, if, you just, if you speak in simple English in a way that people understand, mm-hmm. you know, to turn around and say... Uh, that Boris Johnson, having won a general election, shouldn't be allowed to do what the people want him to do, mm. is frankly ridiculous. But that's actually what they're saying. Mm. But of course, it all gets dressed up in anyway. So I just, I just, I just want everyone to know, uh, I think it's any secret that I consider this, I regard this current Parliament with contempt, um, and I truly hope that uh, enough people uh, in in our great country, uh, i.e., more than fifty point not one percent of them. Um, agree broadly with my point of view and uh, certainly don't allow uh, Marxist uh, Marxist anti-patriotic dangerous people into into our government anyway so that's I just wanted to say that do you have an analogy between um, this political climate what's happening and and business and uh, say say how oh uh, <laughs> he's trying to be clever now. So we're, we're we're having a discussion earlier, and because Drew's not very political himself, uh, and I was saying my little analogy with him was, and this was something I actually said to a uh, a new client uh, last week, and I said, look, my job is to support you, not to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I said, uh, you won't find anybody more opinionated than me, so believe me. If I don't agree with what you're doing or what you're not doing, uh, I will you most certainly it. tell you. <laughs> but but if you say to me, you know, uh, you want to go and buy, you want to buy a flower shop, and I say to you, what the hell would you want to buy a flower shop? It's overpriced. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not part of what you're doing. 
uh, and you say, no, Paul, I've got a passion for buying a flower shop, then I've, I've discharged my duty to you. I've told you you shouldn't buy the flower shop. Having done that, I would then give you 100% in buying the flower shop. Mm. So that's, that's my analogy with Parliament. And I was contrasting that with uh, probably the majority of the legal profession. Sorry, sorry, legal people. <laughs> um, the majority of the legal profession and also perhaps the more traditional, arrogant, sort of uh, larger firms of accountants mm. who, whose, whose approach to business might be regarded as what we might call self-serving rather than serving. Mm, mm, Do you see my point? Mm. So, so my best. point is, I'm Jacob Rees-Mogg. I understand that my client is the people, mm. or my client, mm. the person. You know, It's not for me to sit there and say, I'm cleverer than him. Mm. I've got much more business experience than he has. I don't think he should buy that flower shop, therefore he's, he's not going to buy it. Mm. And if he does, I shall resign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, was, that was my analogy, for better or worse. Yeah, no, that, that really helped, I think. And... Um, Yes, so I think we'll get on We're to... We're a very strong tea this morning. Is we'll, it? Oh, yeah. keep it going. Whether I'll make it to the car or not, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into the disruption yeah. part of the episode, I think. Innovative disruption. And you could say that innovative disruption in business is, is the thing that uh, have, has made the biggest progressions or the biggest changes and biggest happenings in business to, you know, when you think of... Um, Innovations that have like changed the world. That's what that, that's the thing that came to to mind in my head um, when you said innovative <laughs> disruption. Um, well, just to be clear on this, innovation in itself doesn't necessarily mean there's disruption. Mm. Okay. Uh, so it's only if it's disrupting something. Well, that's, 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 I think that's where we, we ought to start. Really, okay. Because so, 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 one of the things that tends to happen in some of our episodes is we start running before. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it would be helpful for people to understand where disruption came from. Mm. And, and, and one of the things you always get with me is honesty. So um, disruption, so I, I, I was saying this to uh, somebody on the phone yesterday. I actually think possibly um, of all the things I'm involved in, uh, it'd be interesting to see um, what other people thought. I think probably if I had to rate myself out of 100 in anything or say where I was better than other people clearly in a field I think I would put marketing down for that okay. um, and that comes from someone who's completely self-taught in marketing uh, and has simply learned over 26 years through trial and error um, you know trying things seeing whether it works or not uh, talking to other great people and observing and obviously doing lots of reading so when I first heard the word disruption which wasn't which was quite fairly, you know, in the, in the scheme of my 26 years in business, was fairly recent. Hmm. I, I, I don't know how far back it would be. Certainly within the last 10 years, I would say, I would have thought. Hmm. I, I don't remember, you know, the in the first 16 hmm. years. Hmm. In fact, I found that, and I know, I know why now. Um, so when I started off, um, in fact, now I understand what disruption means. Um, there have been several times probably in Aspen Waite's career where disruption was taking place at some level mm. but I didn't know what disruption was I can remember when, <laughs> Subconscious when, disruption. I, can remember when I first heard people talking about disruption I think, what was that all about you know? yeah. um, so I've just done some reading on it and I found out actually that the word disruption was first penned in 1995 in America oh, okay. Okay? so 
disruption in itself as a as an understood term mm-hmm. clearly it's been going and I'll give you an example a, a very good example I think of 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 clear disruption taking place historically when nobody knew it it was disrupted because the word wasn't invented mm-hmm. so so the word disruption was in fact it was so one of the things we ought to talk about today as well is I think people probably are more familiar with what we would call market disruption mm-hmm. but actually disruption came from innovative disruption so this article that was written in 1995 didn't talk about market disruption it was talking about innovative disruption okay, right, okay. um so there, there was a there was a subtle difference which we, we will come on to okay, so disruption in terms of uh, a term uh, or a marketing term uh, that's been in the psyche of 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 business and people has only existed for 24 years right so um I'd like to give you a really good example of of what is and what isn't disruption, okay? Mm-hmm. Which is quite interesting. So, if we take, um, let's say, the the end of the eighteen nineteenth century, eighteen hundreds, you know, so Victoria's still the queen. If you look at the dominant mode of transport, mm-hmm. right? So, if you wanted to go from Bridgewater to Salisbury. Horse. How, how do you, yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, we, we won't start to off on horses because it, it gets a bit dangerous to us here. Um, He's the shit of the same so, horse. So just, just help me out. So more than a horse. How, what, horse and cart. Horse and carriage. Okay. Horse and carriage, yes. Yeah. So uh, if, you, if you and I wanted to go for a business meeting in Salisbury, we would get on, we would take our little briefcases onto a coach and we would go up the A3, no doubt. Yes, no, please don't. Um, <laughs> And that's and so that's what would happen. And that uh, so that was um, so even when the first car was invented, mm-hmm. so I'm not quite sure when that was. Get towards the end of the 1800s, okay. Um, to start with, cars were not an immediate threat to the dominant form of travel. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, why was that? Because cars at that time were singly, individually made. Yeah. Okay. And they were... Very expensive. Very expensive. Mm. Proportionately extremely expensive. Compared to a horse. Compared to a horse and cart, indeed. Mm. Thank you, Drew, for this. Um, (laughs) And that story is true of the birth of many disruptive technologies, actually. Mm. So what often happens is the disruptive technology enters the market and it might start off being uh, very, very expensive. Mm. Funny enough, it works the other way around as well. So mm. we might come on to that later. I find it funny as well um, the the horse and, and transport thing. Like now, it, it's it's the it's the the poor poorer people that could have a car, and 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 the richer people that would have a horse. And back then, it would be the the poorer people that would have a horse, and the rich people that would have a car. <laughs> yeah, although that's, that's not in itself disruption. That's just no. A, it's just an interesting a... thing. Like, in, or I find it quite funny. No, it's, it's, it's it's very relevant to the debate in terms of understanding the markets and mm. that that sort of thought process has its place okay but mm. it's not necessarily disruption no you know mm. um so as i was saying uh you, so you had the market leader being the horse you know the, the horse and carriage uh and indeed the horse and cart as you rightly say uh automobiles came along but they were not actually a threat to the establishment did motorcycles come along after automobiles or was it around um, the same time i don't I, I, I would have thought about the same time yeah, I, I can't yeah. see why there wouldn't have been i don't know the mm. answer to that but mm. um I think I think I think you could assume that the, the two things yeah. came together. Mm. It's, it's effectively the same thing, mm. just two wheels instead of four, isn't mm. it, or three, or whatever you want it to be. Mm. So, um, you're as an intelligent man. What do you think had to happen in order for that to change? 
um, uh, cars to become more mass produced and oh. more affordable. Oh my god, what a genius this man <laughs> is! So, and do you know who did that? Ford. Henry T. Yeah, Henry Henry Ford. Oh, so Christ, I'm on fire. <laughs> yeah. So true market disruption, innovative <laughs> disruption, didn't actually take place until something like 1920 or whenever it was. Mm. Right. So for I don't know 40 years, cars the technology existed was there and- alongside horses, but true disruption hadn't taken place mm. because the market needed mass scale production to mm. take place. So Henry Ford yes. came along and he said, ah, I'm going to make, I don't know how many, 100 Model T Fords. Mm. And they're all the same, weren't they? Mm. Black. He said, I'm making black cars. I don't care whether you're on a purple one or a red one. I'm, I'm making, making black, black ones. ones. <laughs> yeah. Black cars, you know, comparatively shedding like peas. So hundreds and hundreds of Model T Fords at, you know, obviously they were, they were hugely expensive. Mm. So I don't know... Um, I don't know uh, the statistics as to how many people would have been able to afford a car, but we, mm. we would be talking about very low percentages. Mm. It'd you know, still be the high echelon Probably of below 5%, mm. I would imagine. You know. mm. um, but nonetheless, uh, in order for true disruption to take place, the market needed Ford to come along with a full-scale production plant mm. where he could mass-produce mm. uh, cars. At that point, then... The, the the day of the horse and carriage was gone mm. right from and that point a, mm. yeah and then and that's interesting like you say like uh, to me at first that it's not that the actual innovation that would um, be disruptive it would be the way that that can be pushed out to society like yeah that if it can be mass produced if it can be taken to society in a in a cheap way and, and, cheap, and yeah. it's interesting because um, I guess you know some of you might be saying well so what's the relevance of this. Well, the relevance of this is that innovation fueled disruption is, in my opinion, the single best way to fuel growth of a business. Okay, Mm. disruption can create new markets, and it allows small companies or even entrants into a market to claim market share, which otherwise would have been very difficult to claim. Um, and also, if you if you read about the true definition of dis- disruptive innovation, um, it also means or disruptive mo- disruptive marketing. Um, it can also mean effectively uh, creating a market that wasn't there before. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's creating a brand new market. Um, so it's quite interesting. Uh, so it's it's, it's also. Um, I mean, let's be honest. I, I think probably. Most lay people would still not really understand what disruption was. Mm-hmm. I think personally, anybody running a business, if they don't understand what disruption is, then get to know. That's a very important. Thank you. That's much better. I was going to say, um, <laughs> you need to. Yeah, get to know. That's really good. In fact, um, my next keynote speech is going to be called "Disrupt or Be Disrupted." Oh wow! Yeah. Mm. Um, and what 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 what's interesting about disruption is. Uh, Commonly, it involves somebody coming into a market uh, at a lower end, at right. a lower price point. Uh, and there can be um, some resistance from the, domi- the, the, let's call them the incumbents in the market. Right. You know, the people dominating the market at that time. And also the customers, because the customer perceives the lower price to mean lower quality. Yeah. If you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, 
let's think let's talk about let's give some examples of uh, of businesses that have seriously been affected by failing to understand disruption right okay so probably uh, the best example would be uh, Kodak <laughs> okay uh, which I has knew it. which has drew <laughs> quite rightly predict said on, on, on our, our, our very interesting discussion on Wednesday uh, was black and yellow red and yellow sorry sorry I lost again I can't even remember um, Kodak were uh, at one point the dominant player in the world market in photography and, and um, what is what's even more bizarre about this lesson in failing to adapt which is really what, what also it means mm-hmm. not adapting with the needs of the market or not foreseeing where the market is going okay? well they, they did didn't they? They, they there were people in the company that did foresee no it. no that's my point ah. but that's what I was going to say what made it even worse yeah. is the, the world's first digital camera was in fact made by an employee of Kodak <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how ridiculous is this Mm. So Kodak invented the very first digital camera, and the board of Kodak basically said, "Tosh, this won't this? work." Oh, this I, I, I can't remember exactly why they didn't think it would work, or it's not so much they didn't think it would work. Well, this this isn't worth they the investment. They did, well, uh, yes, they, mm. they, they 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 perceived that uh, presumably that the the the, the, the current market, uh, you know, was the way to go, and of course, and and, and despite. Uh, there being a second bite of the cherry, and I don't remember the chronology in, involved in this, uh, Kodak then repeated their first mistake and again failed to embrace uh, the the need to to get involved in digital technology. And of course, you know the the parallel in my world, uh, and also you know most businesses today would be, uh, and of course what we have now is we have much better. Um, relaying of information people can just go on google and see what's happening you get sent uh, updates all the time by relevant uh, industry professionals and things so you know it's no secret that we're going through a technological revolution oh, for sure and i think you know nearly everyone understands that business in the future will be done in a way <coughs> which is very different to how it was done mm. right any any firm of accountants, for instance, that fails to understand that is most certainly going to fail. Mm. And unfortunately, you know, and, and I, I can't really because one of the, one of my failings is I tend to think everyone thinks like me to some extent. Mm. I can't understand why. So if I gave you some figures on this, I I would predict over one thousand firms of accountants will fail. Mm. in the next five years okay what do you think the biggest changes are or have been in accountancy um well things like cloud-based technology mm. yeah mm. having things up in the cloud mm. um uh moving to a much more people understanding um uh, advisory advisory yeah, that's what i was going to say approach yeah, that's as opposed change. to a sort of after the event old-fashioned sort of approach mm. Um, so you know it's generally accepted that the accountancy profession will divide into two uh, advisors and cloud-based technicians mm. anybody else will either so basically you either become one or the other or you or you fail mm. okay so Kodak had or it was, what's worse with Kodak 
is they actually had everything in their grasp to actually be successful, but they failed to do so. Now, again, if we if we look at um, uh, the accountancy profession, just just to sort of create some relevancy to this, if you look at what I'm doing, for instance, right, and and, and what I've, what I decided today is rather than talk in my normal uh, marketing speak, I sort of try and use words that people would understand better. Thank you. So, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so for instance, I would say one of the things that Aspen Weight is doing is it's making accessible to the wider market services that had previously been offered by very large firms to a few yeah. people. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you read about the history of disruptive technologies, that is a common theme throughout. Mm. Yeah, mm. So the incumbents, the big players in, the, in their sector... Uh, controlled the market so much that um, you know they they they, they, they had a, 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 a you could almost say developed a complacency or mm. um, this is the way it's always been done you know we're a price waterhouse we're only interested in companies that turn over more than fifty million so we don't care whether there's uh, whether there's a market for uh, advising companies for that That's it's not, not worth us, it for us right now. What's quite interesting is in my in my and of course just finishing off that point, um, what's happened with uh, I think they are a good example actually is while Price Waterhouse still don't and won't probably enter our world if you like you know they, they they're not interested in servicing the sort of people we're proud to service mm. they have they have launched a relatively low cost fixed cost account service which uh, which I find staggering which I know for a fact is quite considerably loss making mm-hmm. uh, but they uh, continue to back that horse you know despite that mm. you know um, when to me that's I don't I can't understand that why they would do that so when, rather than offering some of the bigger services that are only um, available to certain clients they, yeah. off, they offer a smaller service to everyone but but at a loss or, or well, no, just to explain what. So what we're talking about is they they what they the services that they really want to sell mm-hmm. right um, uh, are are restricted to a small percentage of the market. Yep. So let's say less than five percent yep. of of businesses. Then rather than turn around and say right, we'll make those services available, available to, to more than five yep. percent. What they've done is to say we'll keep doing that, but we will bring out. A low cost, fixed cost, um, you know, like cloud based, mm, um, uh, low grade bookkeeping solution, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, which might only cost, say, two and a half thousand pounds a year to a company, mm. right? Um, uh, and, and, uh, and, and so that's what they're doing. Why are they doing that? They're doing that because um, I guess it's a bit like, I'm trying to think of it, I had to explain it to you. So it's it's like a business that says we've got our premium service, which requires really expensive people mm. to deliver. Mm-hmm. Right? We're not interested in having lots more people, a bit like them, to to, to deliver that service to people that's smaller. Mm-hmm. But what we are interested in is having uh, two hundred people in Delhi, mm. yeah, in an outsourced situation where we're paying those people probably one quarter of the wage. People would in the UK to to, to deliver 
uh, a service which they perceive people want. And of course, you know, like anything. So I, for instance, you know, without... So I haven't done this because... I'm a believer in disruption. I've done it because I see the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I, as someone who's worked for two of the biggest three firms in the world, uh, and also, of course, you know, one of the things that's been very uh, rewarding and, 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 and great about our growth is we continue to pick up larger clients. So we now have, in fact, uh, last week uh, in Wales, we picked up the largest clients in Aspen Waits history oh, wow. so we're talking about hundreds of millions of pounds of sales okay and what's quite staggering actually is um, in many cases and I'm, I'm talking about many now so more than probably more than 30% and possibly as much as 50% of businesses that turn over more than say 25 million pounds are not being well advised mm. right so for whatever reason, the incumbent, who's often an auditor, isn't then turning around and saying, this business, turning over £200 million, needs the best tax advice, or it needs... Uh, you know, they're, they're expansive, they're making lots of acquisitions. We need to get our top uh, advisors over to talk to these people. Mm. You know? uh, and that's often because there is a disconnect. Mm. And what I mean by that is... So let's take chief auditor... <laughs> The chief auditor is talking to the financial director. Um, the financial director, if the financial director is not actually actively saying, talk to me about R&D tax credits or talk to me about acquisitions, uh, the audit partner probably has very little incentive or desire yeah. to, to talk about anything else because it's... And, and to give you an example of that, when I worked at Ernst & Young, for instance, uh Probably one of my favourite clients of all time was Television Southwest, okay, which is effectively the, the TV franchise for the bottom part of Somerset, Devon, Cornwall, a bit of Dorset, okay. okay? Uh, absolutely loved the job. And I had a fantastic relationship with the people at TSW. Uh, and in fact, I still get Christmas cards from a couple of them to this day. Oh. And, um, you know, we used to go out and socialise and have big dinners and things. And, uh, I, I, I used there were sort of quite complex um, work that went with um, auditing a large TV company mm-hmm. one of them would be what's called the IBA levy so IBA being the industry that runs TV companies okay so there would be a, a, a levy a charge you know if you like, like a profits tax or whatever you want to call it um, so that was quite a, a big co- a, a calculation computation that went with uh, the tax pack that Ernst and Young did. Uh, now, obviously, me being a very inquisitive sort of guy, having built the relationship, I was very keen to see what more I could do for TSW. Mm. But that was, that was I was shot down at birth, right? Because that's not how it's done, mate. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like being- basically, they didn't care how well I got on with the clients. Uh, Ernst and Young had their own tax department. Bill did the IBA levy, so the fact that I I, I, I understood the business, it didn't matter. Do you see what I mean? It didn't, yeah, it, that's crazy. So, it sounds so seems so counterintuitive. Well, maybe like, counterintuitive, and, but it's just and, the way it is. Yeah. And, and so what happens proactive. is you get you get you know, bearing in mind that I'm by no means the norm. Mm. Um, you know, probably ninety nine percent of auditors um, 
have no desire whatsoever to talk to the client about anything other than the audit anyway. Mm. So we find we find a lot. We have clients with people like Deloitte as their advisor where there are massive opportunities. You know, I find so, that so crazy. So that would be a good example <laughs> of um, creating some kind of disruption. Yeah. So what you're doing is is in effect you are. Um, through knowledge of the market, you're identifying opportunities, adding value, which, which have which go back to the Kodak thing to some extent, that mm. which are only available to you because the incumbents dominating the market have allowed you to do that. Mm. Mm. Do you see what I mean? And now, you know, if you look at yeah, so I I, I like to think that we are Aspen Way are disruptors in every sense of the word. Mm. Because sometimes, you know, and, and if, if people have got the time, um, there's some interest, very interesting stuff on the internet about Uber, for instance, right. who hold themselves out to be and are often uh, sort of <clears throat> applauded for being great market disruptors. Whereas actually, in, in the strictest sense of the term, they are not disruptors at all. Oh, okay. Uh, they are simply people who... <coughs> they are simply people who have... Um, come into a market um, and offered a service uh, comparable to that offered by the people that were in the market already uh, in a way in which a is appealing way. to Easy a way. number of people. Mm. It, 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 they didn't do that, for instance, by entering the market, particularly in a particularly low-cost way. Although... Having said that, I'm not, in my experience, limited experience, I know my son Sam uses Uber a lot. I do think Uber on the whole are cheaper yeah. uh, than, than, yeah. than, say, a, a London cab. And it's like we say about bringing it to the masses, like how easy it is to get it to market. Like It's, it's like an app, isn't it? So it's, so it's people can download an app, you can see see where the cars are, all the Ubers, you can see where they're flying about on Google Maps and everything. It's like a really interactive, easy way for people to, you know, I think it... Yeah, I think I think um, I think the point is that um, is they are they're changing they're changing the way that the market is served, but it's not disruptive. That's the point. Mm, mm. It's not true disruption. It's 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 more to do with exploiting an opportunity. Mm. I mean, to some extent, you know, we can get a bit we can get a bit over ourselves on this. I mean, you know, does it really matter? You know, to some if extent, you call it I, think, or... I think I think I think. I think you know the the main purpose of uh, of people like me talking about things like this is, on the whole, people don't try to disrupt enough. Mm. And as I said, if you come back to the, one of the things I said right at the very beginning, probably the best way to fuel growth is by embracing disruptive innovation. Okay? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you know, having done R and D tax credits <clears throat> for fourteen years now, I think it is. I only realised when I was starting to prepare for my keynote speech on disruption and I found myself going about it in a very interesting way. My mm. brain always interests me. <laughs> so what I, what, I, what I sort of did was I said, well, how, 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 was, how did the market used to do it? So what, was, what is the reaction to that? So if you say things like, you know, accountants historically, dull, dull, um, not personable. Dull? <laughs> reactive. Yeah. Uh, producing um, producing information after the event that isn't highly relevant. So, what's the solution? Personable, hands-on, advisory. You see what I mean? Proactive. So I, I started doing slides like that. And, mm, and, and mm. then, 
what I realised was that, for instance, any company that openly embraced disruptive innovation, right, was by its very nature making it much easier to pass the test of qualifying R&D. Okay. So one, one, of the, one of the things which I think everyone struggles with, because it's such rubbish, to be honest with you, is in the R&D tax credit legislation, there is a requirement for, um, effectively, uh, what, the, what the revenue's point is, if any reasonably competent professional could have done it, it's not, it's not proper R&D. Now, that's such a ridiculous point, because, you know, as I've said many, many times before, um, most, inno- most innovation is actually quite, when you see it, it's like, oh, why hasn't anyone done that before? Yeah. You know? And, and, and anyway, so it occurred to me that if you start with that point, well, if, if, if you're involved in disruptive innovation, you must therefore, by definition, satisfy that test. Mm. Because that isn't, that isn't how convention says to do it. Does that make sense? Mm, it's, it's so I called. I sent an email out, and I put Paul's. I put Eureka moment. Mm. I've just realised that if we if we actually understand fully ourselves, and we advise our clients properly on the importance and the need to embrace disruptive innovation, by definition, R and D tax credit claims must therefore be must now, now therefore be, almost become obvious because you're no longer having to sit down and contrive an answer about the reasonably competent. Mm. Because the fact is, by by its definition, in order for it to be disruptive, it must be different. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that, that that took me fourteen years mm-hmm. yeah, to, to to actually realise that. You know, in the same way, it took me, you know, twenty years to rebrand as a professional services company. So, you know, that, that's, I, th- I think that's one of the one of the things that's most interesting about um, business. And as I, as I, as an R and D advisor, one of the you know people tend to think that the key word is always invention and innovation, uh, and and to me, possibly the most the more relevant word is adaptation. Mm-hmm. So if you look at today's subject disruption, um, you could also say that what would be equally relevant, or perhaps more easy to understand, would be words like evolution and adaptation. So, for instance, um, what do I mean by that? So, if you're a business that's been in, in place for a number of years, doesn't matter how many, and you've got to a point where it's quite cosy, you know, you've got a nice customer base, you're not under too much threat, you know, uh, you're doing well, you know, things, things, you're not having to think too much. If if you just carried on along those lines and didn't do anything to change, mm-hmm. uh, it's a certainty you, you will end up failing. Okay, okay. So, so, it, so, so it won't just stay the same on the same place. Because so things always change. Well-known saying: "He who <clears throat> pla- fails to plan plans to, to fail." fail. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what the saying is. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've, 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 in fact, it's, it's, it's something. I had a client, a very important client uh, of mine in my early years, and they had a very interesting approach to the market, uh, which. Uh, even though uh, I don't think disruption had fully been invented at the time, um, or Realized. probably had been at the time, which just about had been about the time we started doing this. So uh, I did actually fully understand this in terms of I understood intellectually what the issue was. So what they actually did was their plan was they, so if I remember rightly, at that time, they were about a 7 million turnover business. Mm-hmm. 
and their plan was they didn't want to be bigger than a seven million turnover business, mm-hmm. but they wanted to have better customers. Right. Uh, and to give you some example of what they mean by that, what they meant by that, so better customers meant uh, better payers, mm-hmm. people that paid them quicker, mm-hmm. uh, people that were more solid, people reliable, and- people that they. they could work for on higher margins right so to my mind with greater understanding of of where i am today what that business was doing is that they weren't failing to plan they were dynamically standing still mm. so when they weren't standing still standing still they were they changing knew that they need to change something they were changing their business uh so they were they were they were succeeding in so they weren't they weren't they weren't stagnant they yeah, exactly were, yeah. yeah so they they weren't they weren't in danger of failing because mm. they were dynamically mm. standing still sales wise mm. that makes sense mm. Mm. so i think that the point is is that no matter where you are in the market you always need to think about the future mm. so just for instance because even if you had the only product in the market Things I evolve think you should and always assume change. that that isn't the case. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So my view is is as as probably uh, a true disruptor. I like to think, you know. So I've looked at the the accountancy market and said, hey, um, so where everyone else has got to now, I got there six years ago. Mm. You know, p- people need to be offering very personal, uh, a wider range of services. Mm-hmm. You know, and the sort of words I would use is I would talk about trust. You know, trust was a hard-earned thing. So if I could get someone to trust me, giving them more services was a good thing. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Um, so um, that's it. And, and and what you say about the um, the value of doing that as well, of like offer of, of seeing a client and being able to offer a more holistic service, like 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 different mm-hmm. things. Like, why is it? Do you think that these big com- some big companies don't? Um, are kind of put off from that like you said about working in the in the big um you know and and you were shut down when you were seeing different um opportunities for because they don't need to do they because they don't need to yeah okay well because that's what convention is and you know i can't just said that because i I lost my train of thought um you know um you know ultimately um one of the things that i believe quite passionately uh, and I spend a lot of time with this because uh, I do get a bit frustrated with some of my colleagues who who seem to be unable to grasp this. So I still hear far too often. I'm talking about you know our competitors and this competitor and that competitor is offering a cheaper service, and and that's just not true. Mm. The fact is that in the bulk of our market, not all of it. So there is some truth in the point. Okay, at say perhaps ten percent. Ten percent of our world is 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 there is active competition in, mm-hmm. you know, but in the rest of it there isn't at all. And the reason why I believe with every fibre of my body that effectively there is no competition to us is you have to look at uh, the array of circumstances that would need to be in place for someone to come in and compete against us. In in the space that we're really trying to operate in, mm-hmm. so I'm talking now about the complete business growth service, yeah. really, right? So, if you look at, um, so let's look at uh, Ernst and Young, my own experience, okay, which which would, would be exactly the same today, right? So you've got 25 year old Weighty 
um, you know, who's who's not like everyone else. You know? mm. So, which is one of the reasons why, for instance, you know, to be fair to them, they put me on lecturers' workshop because they appreciated uh, I had a personality, and obviously, mm-hmm. to some extent, I'm very grateful to Ernst Young because you know they they made a very profound influence on me in terms mm. of my attitude to business. Because mm. Ernst Young's approach was very know your client, you know. Yeah. To be fair, but the, but the fact of it is is that. Ernst & Young is a multi-billion dollar corporation across the world with hundreds and hundreds of partners. Mm-hmm. There is no one owner. There's hundreds and hundreds of owners, if you wow. like. Mm. So it's just not possible for a 25-year-old mavericky, forward-thinking chap like me to, to, to come into Ernst & Young's world model, if you like, mm. and say, hey, why don't we do things differently? Mm. Mm. It's too it, established. It, 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 it's, it's too um, someone, someone, someone somewhere. In order for that to happen, would have to make a profound decision mm-hmm. that would that fundamentally would the change whole their whole world. Yeah, and it, and it's and it's never going to happen because mm. they don't have the structure the to will allow that to, to want that to happen. Dynamic so probably, change. So probably, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I remember uh, the guy I worked for at TSW was a very, very nice chap, to be fair, and um, he he ultimately later became a partner in the Ipswich office, and because he did think a lot of me, he I was seconded to work on some of his bigger jobs in Ipswich for mm. several weeks a year, which was mm. extremely rewarding. So it's not that my talent wasn't recognised mm-hmm. it's simply that the message wasn't possible mm. and that's the point couldn't fit that model and mm. so the fact is my contention is that uh, unless a business has the vision mm-hmm. it has to have the vision the structure and the will and, and many other things in order to compete against us mm-hmm. because what what's happened is we've, we've managed to, to go from effectively a sole trader business, which is me, mm-hmm. you know, um, but not just your average sole trader, so someone who actually understands, you know, what it's like at the top end. And because it is effectively mostly my decision, I've been able to back my judgment, which is mm-hmm. which is what's required in innovative disruption and indeed to be a, a, a good business manager and entrepreneur. You have to have a great belief in yourself and say, I don't care whether... I mean, you've heard me say this before. I, I don't care. I could go into a room and there'll be 300 people in it and they could all disagree with me and I would passionately believe I was right. <laughs> you know, and you know that because you've yeah. seen it yourself. Yeah. You know, uh, and I think, I don't, I don't think that's arrogance. I think that is, mm. that could be arrogance. In, in, it could be <laughs> arrogance in the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I remember saying to you once in a meeting, I said, apart from anything else, I've earned the right to be respected, I said. Mm-hmm. You know, Um so you know the fact is that um, sometimes it's not possible easily for other people to follow the journey you're taking because of the circumstances that allowed that to happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that all businesses, and I mean all businesses, need to take what I'm talking about seriously. Mm-hmm. Not some of them may not be capable of fully, you know, in creating. Uh, innovative disruption but what they certainly can do is to think about things for instance how can they how can they uh, create another thing you you know you know I'm very passionate about differentiation how can they differentiate themselves from their competitors what can they do about that 
and there's, and there's lots of ways to do that. You could do it on price. You could do it on creating a brand. Mm. You know, all your delivery lorries are bright orange or something. Mm. You know, uh, with dancing girls jumping out the top every time they <laughs> delivery. Yeah. I'm just being facetious, but yeah. you know what I mean. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. all about doing something slightly different. Mm. You know, um, fluid, dynamic, adaptability. Oh Lord! Oh. Where did that come from? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So I hope I hope um, so I hope that's um, been really useful. Yeah, Very I, I would say it's probably one, it's probably uh, almost the single biggest uh, thing that a business owner or a business a board of directors management team need to understand. Because if mm. you don't if you don't embrace disruption, then you know you're you're asking for trouble. Mm. And if you want to take this conversation further and speak to Paul, we're always happy um, to hear people and um, and we're here to help you as well. So, um, yeah, get in contact. And if you want to hear us discuss anything on the podcast, um, let us know. Uh, but that's been a very, very informative episode and um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. <laughs> why, why was that funny? No, it's just it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it's funny, really. Um, so... Um, today playing out with our, our song I was sitting in the car yesterday because I wasn't um, I haven't been listening by my standards to a lot of music recently because I've been um, a busy bee <laughs> yeah well I was going to be a bit more honest than that uh, the last four weeks have been quite difficult I would say oh, okay. so I've been quite preoccupied with, with myself you know mm. um, so one of the things I don't mind saying this in public so I realised that I wasn't as good uh, a chief executive as I thought I was Mm. you know so there were there were flaws and I and I had a what usually happens with me as I as I call it I go down my well a bit when I realise that you know mm. I'm a bit self you know bit down you know and I, I sort of have to deal with that and think about how how I'm going to react one of the things that I've always liked about myself is is I'm resilient mm-hmm. so it, it is true that I wasn't as good a chief executive as I thought I was fact uh, and, and what I've and what I've done is to think about what I need to do to correct that. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what tends to happen when I get pre you know preoccupied like that is I don't like listening to music. Mm. I don't know what you're like as a person. Mm. You know, I tend to listen to music because of moods. Mm-hmm. And if I'm in uh, the sort of mood I have been, I'd rather sit in the car and be in silence because mm, I'm contemplate I'm thinking I don't mm-hmm. I just don't I don't want to be th- singing happy songs mm. I'm, I'm not feeling especially happy mm. you know I need to get to where I need to get to and anyway. some of the really sad songs can make you pull you even well, further down the rabbit hole well, I don't know about that so, uh, <laughs> so um, I'm sitting in the car yesterday thinking um, was there a song that was synonymous with disruption and and I guess um, uh, you know if you wanted to be uh, really really um uh, true to uh, you know the sort of intellectual definitions I was talking about earlier about what true de- de- disruption meant, then probably uh, the real disruptors would have been people like Chuck Berry, Bill Haley and the Comets, and those sort of people. No, no. Well, that's not, that, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. And, and, and the reason why I'm going to pull you up on that is I was so I, see I, I, to me so. If you were, if you were, if you, uh, with, with with respect, I would suggest that people might say, say the Beatles were disruptors, but I don't think they were. Just what the Beatles did. So you know, I said that Uber probably aren't disruptors, although they are changing the way business is done. The Beatles, 
created or or pioneered the English Revolution, as it was called, which then meant that English bands dominated the American charts for probably the next five years or something. And a lot of established American bands died. So that would be a great example of market disruption. The market was totally disrupted by the English Revolution. But if you actually look at the basis on which the Beatles' music was formed, it was formed off the back of old, if you like, black music. You know, soul, uh, soul, blues, uh, rock and roll. So in order for the Beatles to happen, people like Chuck Berry and... You know, even people of the forties and fifties, mm. who probably never, never will be famous, had had to happen. So, to me, they are the true disruptors. The Beatles, mm. the Beatles are Uber. Do you see what mm. I mean? What about before them, though? Who who inspired them? Well, Mozart would have been a disruptor, I guess, wouldn't mm. he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm. Although mm. in his case, for instance, he had to die before he did disrupt because he wasn't actually. Which often happens. Disruption in lives on like forever. Van Gogh, like Van Gogh, you know, Van Gogh. Yeah, Van Gogh was a failure in his lifetime. Chopped you know. off his own ear. Well, that's a, you, you won't read about that properly. So, we're getting into a discussion today about Van Gogh. So, um, yeah. So, uh, I decided actually, it didn't, it, it didn't really matter uh, whether disruption took place in 1943 or 1963. So, I thought about. So, I, I thought about a song which rightly or wrongly sort of made me I came to straight away um, which was um, Public Image by Public Image Limited and I think I should declare at this point this is quite possibly my favourite record of all time okay um, and probably wow. is I'd say on balance if you because one of the things with music as you know yourself is um, you know for instance to, to try and name your ten favourite songs is just impossible yeah even to try and do a hundred mm. uh, and I found for instance if you if you if you were to ask me today what my top fifty songs was, uh, that would not be the same fifty as I would have told you five years ago mm, or ten years ago. Mm, mm. So, uh, so for instance, you know now, uh, as you know, I've I've got uh, more into um, American sixties music. For instance, mm-hmm. would be a, a good way of putting it, mm. and also really good sixties music that passed me by a bit because I was obviously very young at the time, and so to some extent, um, I was dependent on what my mother was listening to or what Radio 1 played you know? yeah um, so um, yeah so I decided that the song I wanted to uh, to, to accompany Disruption mm-hmm. was Public Image by Public Image Limited uh, Public Image were of course led by by um, Johnny Lydon uh, John, Johnny Rotten lead singer of the Sex Pistols uh, a band rightly or wrongly I hugely loved um, and again uh, again, probably in the punk market, you could say sort of a, ba- a band like The Damned was probably more of the true disruptor than Sex Pistols. You know, without The Damned, the Sex Pistols may not have been able to take place. Mm-hmm. But does it matter? You know. So, you know, if we think about punk music, um, what had happened in the seventies, I think, is I've got a very low opinion of the early seventies. So you had this wonderful sixties revolution with beautiful jingly jangly songs and hope and peace and love and then a pile of turgid crap I mean honestly I mean bands like Slade and Sweet and Mud and you know and I don't you know I, I have got a soft spot for Mud and a couple of Sweet songs but goodness sake you know <laughs> if Slade's greatest hits is the 
is the ep- epitome of mankind's achievement in music <laughs> that, that I, I think I would rather not listen to music at all yeah. to, to be honest with you so you know what and, 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 and so what happened this is, I think this, there has to be regarded as disruption I'd be very interested if someone like Sam Clyde was listening to this to see whether she would agree so to me punk had to happen because music was dying mm. music was becoming bland corporate crap mm. Gene, you know, so it, was, it was just rubbish Mm. no soul in it mm. you know it was just you yeah. know the songs the songs are so, don't, 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 don't get me wrong I mean obviously Bowie like Lego Bowie, Bricks they Bowie were... was around at the time mm. and so was Roxy Music mm. people like that you know so there was there was there were people bucking against the trend mm. and go back to your Hendrix point you know Hendrix was um, probably the greatest guitarist of all time mm. and was was able to do things that no one before or since yeah. was able to do Again, I don't think he's a disruptor. Mm. He may be an enabler. Mm-hmm. Again, it would be interesting. You know, one of the things that would be good with some of these things is is to take some of the subplots we talk about and and develop them. You know, mm. so what was Hendrix's true place in mm. rock history? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think punk punk came along because music had lost its way, and certainly as a man at his peak when punk, you know, I was sixteen years old when punk came came along. And um, and quite creative, you know. I can remember writing a song uh, called "Complete Control." The Clash brought out a song called "Complete Control" six weeks later. I can remember feeling very upset. And even really? some of the lyrics, yeah, some of the lyrics were exactly the same. Oh my god! Yeah, and I used to call myself Paul Demented. Uh-huh. Um, but I'd never because this is the thing. So you can be you can be part of something without having to conform. I think mm-hmm. so. You know, on the whole, people. People, if you went to watch, you know, the Sex Pistols or Adam and the Ants, you know, in those days, I was at Cardiff, for instance, when I was eighteen. You know, most of the people in the crowd all had silly spiked up, gelled hair with, mm-hmm. you know, piggy things Safety through their pins noses. Through the nose, yeah. uh, they all looked vaguely threatening, yeah. wearing leather jackets that they kick the shit out of you. Uh, and I refused to do that. So yeah. I liked. But to you dress still like enjoyed the. So I went to the punk concert wearing oh, a tie wow. and my blue jacket and my orange dress. Fair play to you. You know, because mm. because I'm not. I don't. I don't need to dress like that to no. go to a punk concert. Yeah. You know, but I you refused. still you still embraced and appreciated the energy of you know, the, the punk. Love punk music more than oh, me. Oh, that's that's very know? interesting. So um, anyway, my point is is that punk music needed to happen. I think, and then of course. <clears throat> What happened is, um, let's take uh, the Stranglers would be uh, a great example. So, at the time, uh, I, I, I believed that as a, as a seventeen-year-old man, for instance, a teenager, wherever I was, um, the Stranglers were right up there in my favourite bands, my mm-hmm. favourite punk bands. You know, I mean, lyrics like "plastic straw for when you're sick." Plastic mm. straw for when you're sick. You know what a what a great mm. lyric. Well, you might not think so, but <laughs> but I do. Um, I don't yeah. really get that one to be honest. Plastic straw for when you're sick. That's, oh. that's, a, that's one of their lyrics. Yeah. Well, so tell me what you've got to look so pleased about. <laughs> do, 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 do. I mean, really growly bass, you know. So you know, really interesting, um, really interesting stuff. And of course, to some extent, you know, when you're that age, you, you've got this sort of mild rebellion. So it's a bit naughty the fact they're singing about someone being sick. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, now. Actually, probably if you th- sit back and think about it, um, perhaps the Stranglers never really were a punk band. Mm. Perhaps they were too good to be called a punk band, you know. And of course, what happened is they went on, for instance, for another ten plus years, uh, and 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 played some really interesting stuff, mm. you know. 
some of which we've played before in previous episodes. So, you know, they 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 evolved into a very fine band, as did the Jam, for instance. You know, um, so you know, I think the Sex Pistols actually um, had much better songs than probably they were given credit for at the time. But anyway, the Sex Pistols were no more. A public image was created, and I, I can remember. Uh, the huge excitement of I used to buy Melody Maker every week and on this particular week when this song came out it was in a special presentation so if you bought you, you, it had a, uh, a, U, a Union Jack with a newspaper uh, and the record was inside it oh. so I, that's, that, I remember that very vividly and how, how it impact and the song to me is basically you know captures everything I think that you'd want a song to have so it's uh, it's catchy it's got a great a really great impactful entrance you know uh, and then you know I think the, the guitar riff running throughout is just moves me I I, 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 hear, I can hear it a thousand times <laughs> and I still think it's magnificent mm. every time this is your desert island one that you would uh... yeah, maybe, yeah. And, and, and even if you watch the video uh, the way the lead guitarist plays his guitar and how he finishes is just just really captures it for me. Mm. Johnny Rotten's performance as the lead singer is amazing. Mm. I just love love everything about it, and and the, and the lyrics, uh, you know, we're all different, aren't we? I, I I find the lyrics incredibly inspiring. You never listen to a word I said. Mm-hmm. You only see me for the clothes that I wear. But the image was so much deeper. Mm. You know, mm, mm. just um, you know, really, really great. And of course, when you're when you're young, you you know whether it's true or not. There's a degree of sort of polite anger in that, isn't there? Mm. Frustration, mm. not, you know, not being saying, seen. Or you're saying, hey, for who you, know, you really are. You only see me superficially, yeah. but actually, I'm so much better than that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Mm. It's that deeper message in the music that's always like, yeah, it's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> and and, and you know, genuinely, I find it. I find this record incredibly inspiring. So uh, unashamedly, this is Mr. Waite's favourite record of all time. I think <laughs> "Public Image" by Public Image, a fan, an absolutely fantastic song. And for me, uh, it, it it just captures the true spirit of disruption. Mm. Enjoy, listeners, and we will see you next time. <laughs>